evening, guys. I figured it would be a good time to do a pontificating with Pete. Hope you all enjoyed the Super Bowl, first and foremost. Uh, obviously, with the exception of how it concluded, we all know we're going to be hearing about that nonstop. Um, it really was a great game. Uh, it was a... It was a game that had the opportunity very early on to not be a great game because it looked very early on like Philadelphia was very much ready for the moment. Uh, that was one of the big question marks I thought going into the game was whether or not they would be ready for the moment that a lot of teams, especially their first time making the Super Bowl, are generally not ready for the moment. Nervous jitters. There's a lot of things to cover from this game tonight, but the the reality is, is that this is one of those games that, as great as it was, it's going to be remembered for one thing, and that, of course, is the late holding penalty, which I have already been in full debate with a handful of people, including my father. Uh, here's what I would say regarding that last call. Uh, the call that ultimately did decide the outcome from the standpoint of not allowing Philly to get the ball back and to be able to go down the field and try to either tie or win the game. Uh, it was the right call at the wrong time. Uh, was, um, you know, was Schuster held? Was he waist-locked? Yeah, he was. Now the question becomes, do the referees get together after throwing the flag and say, you know, we have to let this one go, uh, and so be it. Now, as you all can see, for those of you who obviously know the show and know me, or maybe tuning in for the first time, as you can see, I am a fan of the New York football giants. So there is no secret in terms of who I was pulling for in this game. With that said, um, I think that the officials should have, gotten together and said, no call, no call and go, you know, go on to the next play, which would have been, I believe, uh, McBiz. I, I think there was about, I want to say it was like a minute 20 remaining something in it's a minute 30 remaining when that call was made. And so at that point he would have kicked the field goal. There would have been up 38, 35, and then they would have had the opportunity to take the ball down the field. Uh, would Philly have been able to at least tie the game? It's certainly likely. I mean, I mean, Kansas City did a fantastic job of slowing down Philly's offense in the second half. In fact, they did not score. They held them to three points until like five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. So they – their ability to make the big defensive stop when they needed to was certainly in the cards. And those who would suggest, well, you know, Philadelphia would be in a situation where they would be going for it on fourth down. They were going for it on fourth down. Coach Sir Sirianni was going for it all the time, all the time. He was going for it. And it's amazing to me how the type of risks that Philly's coach was willing to take in this game. Really ballsy. But the truth is, if you're going to win, 
especially in sort of a dead even matchup, you, you got to be willing to take chances. And that was something that Philly was able to do. And they were able to do it effectively because this really was an amazing chess match in so many ways. From a defensive standpoint, Kansas City really did a spectacular job of stopping Philly's run game. They really did. Uh, hadn't seen that done in quite some time. And what's even more amazing is if you look at Philly's run defense, or, or let me rephrase that, when you talk about Philly's run game, they're able to put six in the box, and I, and I joke, it's like you had a bunch of country bumpkin guys from parts of the heartland that were used to cow tipping their whole life, and we decided that we're going to put you in on an NFL uh, team, and you're just going to knock over guys like you would knock over cows. And they do this rugby-style, you know, power-eye formation that is – unbelievably effective and no one was able to figure this out the entire year uh to a degree kansas city was not able to figure it out but they did make some key stops along the way early on they couldn't do anything with it much like the rest of the league couldn't do anything with it with that said uh one other point that i do want to make as uh, has been put in uh as as, as has been uh, put in the chat you really have to give a lot of credit to Jen's college friend, Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator of Kansas City, who really changed the game plan at halftime into such an effective tactic because what Philly was doing was taking the ball away from uh, Travis Kelsey. They made it their defensive mission that anybody but Kelsey is going to beat us tonight. Well, at halftime, they adjusted. And the way they adjusted was to make sure that the ball went in the direction of, obviously, Schuster. Uh, McKinnon played tremendously well for Kansas City. Can't take anything away. And, and I, as, as a fantasy football participant and somebody who benefited greatly from Mr. McKinnon being on my team, he really, really did a great job. Uh, had a huge block up the middle uh, on the touchdown throw that Mahomes had midway through the fourth quarter that really made a huge difference uh everyone had a had a role to play that that really stepped up in so many respects but the enemy changed the entire offensive scheme at halftime uh they ran a lot of running back sweeps that worked uh they got their offensive linemen out in in um and they got them off the line out into coverage and they were able to block downfield very effectively. So they really did an amazing job there. Kansas City scored on every possession in the second half. One of the big talking points going into this game was how effective was Philly's defensive front four going to be? They were not that effective, especially in the second half. And that is all credit to... The enemy and his scheming, what they were able to do in order to block properly, in order to make sure that Mahomes had enough time to make plays and give Patrick, who without question was the MVP of this game, um, the way that he was able, even on a bum ankle, to beat 
Philly with his legs. He had some really amazing runs. It was the heart of a champion. It was a team that was just not going to be denied, even though it seemed like it, this was Philly's game to win. It really did. It felt like it was Philly's game all night, even in the second half. You didn't really get the sense that this was going to be Kansas City's night, but they made the plays in succession that just really changed everything. The touchdown right out of the box in the second half, holding Philly to a field goal when they had a long drive but could not get into the end zone again. Kept it at six. Uh, Moore with the amazing return. Flipped the field. Was able to get down and make it a 20-yard to go uh, setup for Kansas City. Was able to score the touchdown. Kansas City getting the defensive stop. Spagnolo doing what Spagnolo does in the Super Bowl. Just making tremendous plays when they need to be made. Got him off the field. Came right back down, you know, and then give Philly credit. Philly had the ball, you know, with about eight minutes to go. They zoomed right down the field. Of course, Hertz made another tremendous throw to Smith. Somehow tiptoe out of bounds, wasn't able to score. Uh, but when they go to that hard power eye front, front six formation where they just stack the box It's one of the most unique running styles I've ever seen. It's probably not been seen. And again, it reminds me of a rugby setup. That's what it looks like. You've got your five offensive linemen. You've got a tight end. And then you've got two, uh, you got dual running backs behind Hertz to basically give him extra leverage if for whatever reason he gets stopped short. I can't even begin to count how many times that Hertz was able to get just that extra yardage that was needed because he was getting two or three guys behind him, pushing him forward. Absolutely remarkable what they're able to do with the run game from a short yardage standpoint. But when it came to getting those huge chunks of yards that they were able to get throughout the regular season against my Giants in the divisional playoff round in the NFC title game, but granted, Kansas... Philly was very fortunate against San Francisco because once San Francisco lost their quarterback, both quarterbacks, that was the end of the game. So it didn't really matter what the defense was going to do. It, it, it Absolutely emotionally demoralizing. They were not able to deal with that. But tonight, much as it has been throughout the year, that power eye formation that is, like I said, looks like the setup of a rugby game, Um, It really worked in short yardage situation for Philly as it did all year. But Kansas City was able to get the stops necessary as was needed over the course of the game where they were forced into longer yardage situations. Now, here's something that is going to get talked about a lot. Now, we all know that the call at the end of the game, as I have stated, should not have been called, even though I believe it was the right call. So here's the problem. There were so many other calls throughout the game. Now, this is an officiated game where the refs were not blowing the whistle. They were swallowing the whistle more often than not. Now, when you look back at that play, which would have given, I believe it would have given, forgive me for not remembering the exact score at the time when 
Kansas City was successfully able to get Philly to fumble the ball. I'm forgetting the two players that were involved in the play at the moment, but what should have been a fumble, a second fumble recovery for a touchdown. I don't, I can't recall if it was 14 all or if it was 21, 14 at that moment. But what I do know is that if you go back and you watch that play, the argument is that he didn't take two steps, but the letter of the law in the NFL states that if you catch the ball and you attempt to make a football move, which he clearly did, that's a fumble. And that is seven points off the board that the officiating took away. And that completely changes the dynamic of the game right there again. Much as Hurts' fumble, fumble for six made a huge difference in terms of the momentum of the game. When it was 14-7 and Philly was driving again, it felt like they were dominating the entire night. And it was further to that, to that point where it seemed like they were completely taking control of the game. But in that instance, where Hurts fumbled for the six, that changed the whole outlook of the game because it, it changed the mindset of the way Hurts was going to attack from the run, which it did. When he throws out into the flat and he gets knocked, it, it gets literally catches the ball, turns to make a move, and gets the ball punched out. I'm sorry, but that is a fumble. I know everyone's looking at it saying, well, he didn't take two steps. I'm telling you, if there's one thing I know about the letter of the law in the NFL, there's two things regarding catches in the NFL that everyone should know and understand. Number one, you catch the ball and you make a move that constitutes a catch and a, and a move, which means that if you hit, get hit and you lose the ball, it's a fumble. That's number one. Number two, if you catch a ball, and if you're in bounds or falling out of bounds and you do not complete the catch through the full motion, I have seen this happen countless times, including one very unforgettable one to Des Bryant in Green Bay back in 2015. Uh, if you fall to the ground and you get knocked over and the ball slightly moves while it's on the ground or it touches the ground ever so slightly, it's not a catch. So for anyone out there who was complaining about that particular play, which was the drive that ultimately resulted in Philly having to kick a field goal, that was the right call, period. And they're going to act like, well, we got you know screwed over in that instance. No, you didn't get screwed. But everyone feels that way. Philadelphia had a perfect season in so many ways. Their schedule was just what it needed to be. Hertz was fantastic. He should have been the MVP. I know everyone is with Mahomes. The argument for Mahomes over Hertz to me is simply this. I don't think it has anything to do with record. They had the same record. Philly has more talent than Kansas City does, especially on the offensive side of the ball. The defensive job that Kansas City did on A.J. Brown cannot be overstated. Much as Philly's defense against Travis Kelsey was amazing, Kansas City's defense against A.J. Brown was fantastic. He got over the top one time the whole game. He was reduced to dinking and dunking the entire time, which was amazing. That, that's not going to get talked about enough. What's going to get talked about is that holding call 
with a minute and a half to go. That's what's going to get talked about. Don't think for one second that there are these little nuances that lead up to this moment that prevented Philly from getting the stop that they needed to get. They had to blow a timeout in the second half of the Super Bowl because of a delay of game that was coming. You know how many delay of games I counted that the refs overlooked that Philly got away with? Three of them. And while the argument is, well, you know, they let the delay of game go all the time, I can assure you that when it says one, it means that it's now 0.09, 0.08. When it gets to zero, it means it's zero. It's not zero and I have another second. At zero, it means the play's dead. And how many times they overlooked that, it got to the point where it was late and it was so obvious that Hertz was going to get another delay that Suriati had to call a timeout. You never waste a timeout in the second half, ever. And you better believe that if Suriati, I haven't listened to his post game, I guarantee you if he has anything to say right now, especially in light of the holding call, I guarantee you, because if they had all their timeouts, they still would have been able to stop Kansas City. That holding call would have been bad, but it still would have prevented them from scoring a touchdown. Without that last timeout, without that extra timeout, it changed the difference between stopping the clock and being able to get the ball back with about 50 seconds left instead of getting it back with four seconds left. That's the difference. That's something that won't be talked about, but should be. Great game. One of the better Super Bowls uh, probably ever played. Uh, just, it was a clean game. You know, Kansas City didn't turn it over. That's obviously a huge difference in the game. Philly has the Philly had the talent, but you know you can't under you can't underestimate the heart of a champion. You really can't. This loss is going to sting in Philly for a long time. They are not going to get over this one. This is very similar in terms of pain of losing a Super Bowl. This is right there without question to Seattle losing to New England in Super Bowl 49 when they threw at the one-yard line when you have Marshawn Lynch in the backfield who just ran for five yards on the previous play, could have easily scored on the next play. Oh, get it. That's this kind of loss. And the only thing that softens the loss to some degree is for Eagles fans anyway. I mean, this Eagles team is going to literally be in therapy for the next eight months. You know, Eagles fans got a Super Bowl in the last five years. That's a big deal. The same was true for Seattle. They were able to the, – the, the blow was softened because of the fact that they had won the Super Bowl the previous year. The same is true for a lot of Eagles fans who won a Super Bowl recently and never had one in their entire life. This one today is really going to hurt. And they're only going to look at this last call. They're not going to look at the succession of things that led to this call being able to decide the outcome of the game, which in many ways it did. As I said, did he hold them? Yes. Should it have been called? No. Should have just let it go. You kick the field goal. You're up three, a minute and 30 to go. Hertz gets the ball back. Let's see if your defense is great enough. Spagnolo, if your defense is great enough, to stop them from at least getting into the end zone, which they probably would have because Philly was not moving the ball quickly at all. They were taking their sweet damn time the entire game, and then all of a sudden, they decide to speed it up a little bit. But even then, it was only for a couple of deep throws that worked out two or three times over the course of the game, which obviously had, were very consequential, to say the least, and maybe 
maybe they have a chance to do that again. But it didn't happen. My, my brother-in-arms, my big blue brother-in-arms, Matt Kane is here to let everybody know that the Eagles suck. Yes, the Eagles do suck, but I can also call the spade a spade. I don't sympathize. I mean, I feel, eh, I, I don't know how I feel. Uh, all I know is, uh, thank you very much, Mr. McBusiness. You know, and I thought to myself, would this have had any impact, you know, regarding spread? Did that play a role? It was 1.5 last I checked before the game actually began in favor of Philly, which at that point, it's a pick -em. So it doesn't really matter. Plus, at that point, 70 points had already been scored. It was way in the over at that point. So, no, I, I don't. For those who are like, well, did Philly, you know, did there was an ax to grind? I don't know. But I will say that in terms of the calls that were missed up until that call that helped Kansas City, this was a game that was pretty even with a slight bend towards Philadelphia in terms of the officiating. If you're watching with an objective eye, that's the way the game went. Now, for those who are saying that we're not in a situation where we can look at this any other way, that the league has favorability towards Kansas City, don't even think of comparing the, the Eagles getting the short end of the stick on one call late. That wasn't the right time to make the call, even if it was the right call. But compare this to what happened to Cincinnati against Kansas City in the AFC Championship game. There is no comparison. That game was, as, as Mike Francesa would say, an utter disgrace, which it was. Kansas City shouldn't have been here. They are the Super Bowl champions, and they won this game. No question. But they should not have been here. Cincinnati should have been in the Super Bowl. So if you want to talk about the officiating, you talk about that. Philadelphia, it just seemed like their season was just too easy. Like they just had everything go right for them. The fact that they... The fact that every break went their way until the last break that they needed didn't, it stings like hell. It really does. They had an amazing season. They, Jalen Hurts, like I said, you know, you could have easily given him the MVP. Their defensive front was unbelievable. I don't think Mahomes was sacked once in this game, which again, it tributes it, it, it is attributable to the unbelievable game plan that Mr. Bienemy drew up in order to protect his quarterback. Because a lot of people went into this game thinking there was no way that they would be able to stop Philly's front four, at least not to the, to the extent that they did. They really held him in check. So their season was predicated on an unbelievable pass rush that set incredible records. They had an incredible running game, unstoppable running game, which again, Kansas City was to a degree able to stop tonight. 
They get the top seed. They get in. They get my Giants in the divisional round. The Giants basically threw the game away in the, at the beginning of the second quarter when it was 7 nothing, uh, or the end of the first quarter. They had an opportunity to pin them deep with a punt. They decided to go for it on fourth and eight at the 42. They didn't make it. It was a terrible decision. Eagles are at midfield. They go right down. They make it 14 nothing. The very next possession – Daniel Jones throws an interception, and then it's 21-0, and the game is over. The Eagles face the 49ers in the NFC title game. It should have been a great game. Unfortunately, 49ers quarterback gets injured very early on. Their backup quarterback gets injured. And then for about three quarters of the game, they have no quarterback. They have to run the ball the whole time. Uh, Joe, I, I would definitely agree that the punt return by Moore, it, it felt like – you weren't sure. The game just kind of felt even at that point, but the punt return by Moore changed the momentum. It went fully into the into the arms of Kansas City at that point. You felt the momentum change with that punt. You felt like Philly, you could see they were back on their heels at that point. And still give them credit. They still managed to march down the field when they absolutely needed to, even though they hadn't been able to do it in almost two quarters, but they were able to march down the field and get the touchdown to tie the game when they absolutely needed to get it. So you give them a lot of credit for doing that. But as I've often said, and this is the tragic part of sports, because I have seen games in yesteryear where the officiating absolutely played a role in the outcome, especially in all of the, well, particularly baseball, basketball, and of course, football. You know, we know about the games that have been singled out in the history of the NBA. Game six between Sacramento and L.A. in 2002. Game five between Dallas and Miami in 2006. Um, you know, Tim Donaghy obviously came out and talked about the way that the league uh, fixes games. All that. In the NFL, I look back at Super Bowl 40 between Seattle and Pittsburgh. That's the worst officiated Super Bowl by far. Uh, completely caved on behalf of uh, Pittsburgh, which was wrong. Uh, the NFC title game between Minnesota and New Orleans in 2010. Uh, there was no quite that was the head that was the head hunting game on Brett Favre. Uh, everything came out after the fact that they were trying to injure him, that they were able to get away with a lot of plays throughout the course of the game. Minnesota had their chances to win that game. They absolutely should have won that game. They didn't win it. It is what it is. But today. We're looking at a game today uh, that is true. Absolutely true, Joe. The late hit that should have been a pass interference. Drew Brees would have gone to his second Super Bowl, and he certainly would have been a much more formidable opponent for Tom Brady and the Patriots than Jared Goff was. Jared Goff was the biggest deer in headlights I've ever seen in the history of the Super Bowl. They should have brought in the backup quarterback. It was so bad. That was really bad. Sorry for our boat if you're watching. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was a that was a bad one. And that was the toughest Super Bowl in recent memory to watch. Super Bowl Fifty Three. That one. That one was bad. But we've been very fortunate in recent history. The Super Bowl has been exceptionally entertaining exceptionally entertaining. This year was fantastic. The year before was fantastic. 
the Super Bowl between Kansas City and Tampa Bay was okay. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Um, the Super Bowl between Kansas City and San Francisco was great. Obviously, you know, you have the Super Bowl uh, between Atlanta and New England, which, again, New Atlanta blew that game. If there ever was a Super Bowl that was blown, uh, Seattle and New England was an amazing Super Bowl, obviously, with the exception of that last play call. We've been very fortunate. The Super Bowl in general over the past decade plus, uh, especially starting with the Giants and the Patriots in, in Super Bowl 42, which is still the best. That's the best Super Bowl that's ever been played. I am biased, but that's the best one ever. Um uh, and we've basically been very fortunate that the game has just been really great to watch ever since, every year. You know, it's uh, it's been great, and this game was great. It was an all. It, it was frankly, it's it's a classic Super Bowl, in many ways. It had a lot of drama. It really did an amazing job. It really did. Both teams played great. They really did. And one is going to lose. But, of course, the story is going to be not the succession of plays or the missed calls that did obviously happen. That will be of discussion. All anyone's going to remember is the last two minutes of the game where it is perceived that the officiating ultimately decided the outcome. What if Nick Sirianni had all of his three timeouts remaining? Clearly, the game is going to be decided in a different outcome because they would have been able to stop the clock. Who's to say, knowing Andy Reid, that Kansas City wouldn't have taken a shot at the end zone? Who's to say that they definitely would have run the ball three straight times to take time off the clock in order to kick a field goal and still be left with the same situation? Probably not likely. As I've pointed out, had they had their timeouts, had that timeout not been wasted, on the delay, potential delay of game penalty, which now in hindsight, they obviously would have wanted to take that penalty. But in hindsight, if they had that delay, if they had that extra timeout, Philadelphia gets the ball back 38-35 with 50 seconds left, not four. That's more than enough time, even without timeouts, to at least get into field goal range. That timeout makes a huge difference. Sorry, brother. It's a great Super Bowl, but that was a game that was completely blown by the Falcons. And the idea that if you look back at that game and one play that always stands out in my mind, you know, there's a lot. Again, it was a succession of plays that, you know, Brady had to make, obviously. James White, in my opinion, was the MVP of that game, hands down. Uh, you know, Edelman makes that ridiculous catch. Uh you have the the fumble deep uh, deep in Atlanta territory where Matt Ryan wasn't looking, got completely blown up on that play, which was crazy. Changed the momentum right there. But don't forget that when New England made it twenty eight to twenty, Atlanta finally decided to start playing again. They basically had stopped playing 
since they scored that touchdown to make it 28 to three, assuming the game was over. Most, of course, would have assumed it was over. But at that point, they finally had a solid drive, and that includes the drive where Ryan hit uh, Julio Jones with that tap-tap, ridiculous catch falling out of bounds. That should have been the Super Bowl. And why? Because that catch, with about three minutes to go, put them in field goal range. And New England, I don't, I think may have had like one timeout remaining. They could have run the ball three straight times, gotten the ball down to about the two-minute mark, kicked a field goal, bit up 31-20, and that would have been the end of the game. But no, what did they do? They threw the ball three freaking straight times. Give New England credit. They still had to make plays to win the game, but Atlanta blew that game. Period. Not the best Super Bowl. One of the all-time Super Bowls, absolutely. Great game, but not the best. Super Bowl 42 between the Giants and the Patriots is the best game you'll ever see. From start to finish, it was the best played game. It was the best defensive game. It was a game where every play felt like it would decide the game. David Tyree's catch is still the greatest individual play you'll ever see. Every play could have been the end, could have been the beginning. It, it was um, – I don't agree with that. I don't think every great comeback involves a great choke job. I think sometimes teams make the plays or try to make the plays that they can, and the other team is just simply better. They just simply find their way. They find a way to be able to make the necessary plays. It happens from the best. I get the feeling you're a Pats fan, which is fine. Super Bowl 49? I would put Super Bowl 49 probably, it's in the top, it might be the top, it's definitely the top 10. It might be the top five. It's it's great. I disagree. I'm telling you, there's and and there and, and there if there is one thing that you cannot deny is that the whole David versus Goliath, there is something special when you when you're able to experience that. So, bottom line, it was a great game. It is unfortunate that it ended the way that it did. There are there, there were a lot of things, Jan, very nice to see you. Jan, if you're not subscribed on YouTube, it's Generational Change on YouTube. Hope you'll join us over there if you can. You know, it is unfortunate that the main talking point tomorrow on every sports radio, every sports TV show, Stephen A. Smith, I can already hear it right now. I can't believe they made that call. Yeah, I get it. Everyone's going to be talking about the call. Terrible call. Didn't need to be made, but it was the right call. That's the bottom line. And that's what hurts the most is that it's a terrible call because of when it was called, not because of what was called. The call was correct. The timing was terrible. And it ultimately decided the outcome in many ways. But as I've stated, there are plenty of other calls throughout the course of the game that hugely benefited Philadelphia and could have made the difference, but it didn't. Timing is everything, as is often said. But in this case... There was another uh, point of emphasis that I wanted to talk about tonight. Now, of course, it is the Super Bowl. And I'm sure a lot of you saw the commercials. Look, the Super Bowl can't make commercials the way they once did. Commercials today are nowhere near what they once were. But I have to say, the amount of commercials that I saw tonight that involved promotion of alcohol, 
was insane. I have never seen anything like this before. And it isn't that they were promoting beer. You know, Bud Light and Blue Moon decided to do their beer uh, advertisements late. There were multiple, several commercials for hard liquor. As if we don't have enough problems in this country. This is, it's amazing. And the commercials were just so bad. Like lack of creativity just wasn't there. I will say there were, a, you know, there's always a few that are good. I happen to, I, I ain't no cheese ball, but I will tell you that I actually thought that the John Travolta uh, T-Mobile commercial was actually pretty good. They did a good job uh, with Greece. And of course, how do you not like Zach Braff and Donald Faison? They're just a great, that you could tell that the bromance is real. They're a great, great pair of guys. And, you know, John, John still got his thing going. Uh, I thought that the uh, rock, uh, uh, Rakuten, Rakuten, I think is how you say it, uh, the commercial with um, Alicia Silverstone when they did a throwback to Clueless, I thought that was very good. Uh, what other commercials stand out? What other commercials stood out? Uh, I hated that commercial with the dog where I, I'm thinking, what is this, a, a commercial for a dog's funeral? They, they, they show the sad-faced dog who's very old, and the person's like that. I swear to God, I, I'm like, what is this, a funeral for a dog? Molly, absolutely. The Triangle commercial, that was a good one. For the Doritos, that was a very good commercial. There's your top three. There's your top three commercials from the Super Bowl. Guys, please smash the like button if you haven't, and please join us on YouTube, Generation... Uh, right there. Join us right there. Generational change on YouTube. I did it. Figured it out. Uh, yes. And Jen is right. It was very nice to see John Travolta in his element. It was a tender commercial. He did a really nice job. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of loss in his life. Uh, he's been a great entertainer. And so of all the things that he could have done, I think it was a very nice tribute to Olivia. Um, it was nice to see him do something. Um, and of course, like I said, Zach and Donald, I mean, they're, they're great. Uh, the Triangle commercial, I thought, did a really great job of mocking uh, the American uh, pop culture scene. Um, but seeing the amount of commercials that were just lame. We all know that I'm going to talk about the one commercial that obviously is the big story and, and I'll get to it in a minute. Uh, but the amount of commercials that promoted alcohol was just obscene. Really obscene. And by the way, the Diddy commercial, which I'm sure he thought of himself because we all know Sean Combs just loves the smell of his own farts, among other things. His commercial sucked. One of the worst of them all. Sorry, Sean. Never been a fan. Never, ever, ever. 
I like your mockery, Jen. So the most talked about commercial is definitely going to be the political ad of left versus right, liberal versus conservative, progressive versus libertarian, whatever you want to call it. People yelling in each other's faces. People saying, I hate you. Or, ah! Find Jesus and you'll be okay. If I didn't know any better, I would think that they were suggesting doing away with the separation of church and state. Maybe if we all had Jesus in our lives, we wouldn't disagree politically. Maybe if we just allowed the church to run our lives, then everything would be okay. Yeah, no, that doesn't work for me. I don't know what message you were trying to send, and I have no problem with if you, you know, believe in Jesus or you're preaching the gospel. I, I don't have a problem with that. But this idea that you're going to try to use religion as a way to dispel the disagreements of society, like it's not an economic crisis that we're living in, and that the culture war is just a distraction from the fact that we do not have health care, we do not have a living wage, we do not have a clean environment, we have endless war, and our civil liberties are being eroded every day, and criminal justice reform cannot and will not be allowed to come to fruition because there's too much money behind it. Those are the crises of our time. And yet, let's make an ad about the emphasis on political division and sprinkle it with, find Jesus and it'll all go away. Friend of the show, Jane D'Onofrio, and the new head of the Florida College Democrats. And he's not even in college yet. Talk about a go-getter that I fully support. Spending all that money, I don't know. Probably could have helped a lot of people. I'm not exactly sure what that money is being spent for or how they think they're going to help people. Yeah. Jesus was a socialist and a rabbi and a carpenter. Is he the savior of mankind? I don't know. I will say this. If you, and Jaden, you're Catholic, so you, you would understand. Uh, if you strip away all the aspects of the church, all the aspects of the gospel, and you just kept it specifically to the teachings of Jesus and only him and nothing else. I would imagine that society probably would be better off. I admit that. But that's not the world we live in. Religion is big business. Huge, huge business. And that's why they spend $20 million on advertisements in the Super Bowl. It's not about 
you know, Jesus saves. They want you to believe that. But the truth is they're investing $20 million backing on this idea that enough people will eventually have their come to Jesus moment by joining a church and giving the church money. How many people does it need to work on for them to make back that money? I don't know. A couple million out of the people that are watching the Super Bowl. Let's assume 100 million people are watching. They need one to 2% of people to take that message to heart and decide that, yeah, I'm going to get involved with the church. And you donate to the church and you're there for a while. You're not maybe going to see the return on investment today or tomorrow or a year from now, but over time, maybe. Why not? It's a good investment. You want to be involved in the political process? There is no longer a separation of church and state. And if you need any further proof that there isn't, look at Mike Pence. And they're the worst. Joel Osteen is worth, I don't know how much he's worth. He's worth a lot. He's worth a lot of money. And most of how he's earned it is just by being a, you know, a bullshit peddler. Because that's what it is. That's what being a religious pastor for profit is. You're a bullshit artist. And you make an ungodly amount of money basically preying on the fears of those who either are afraid, don't know any better, or had it indoctrinated into them since they were young. This has always been my biggest argument. If you want to know the biggest problem with the GOP, everyone has their beliefs, of, you know, their, their thought processes about, oh, the GOP is a fascist party and they're this and they're that. Everyone is, is captured by the moment. They can't see straight and social media affects people's judgment. The fact of the matter is, we do not have a separation of church and state. And the GOP's attachment to the evangelical right is the biggest reason not to support them. There are many issues to debate regarding economic processes and so forth. But when it comes to this so-called moral compass, live and let live. And that's why I really have it with libertarians because Libertarians are supposed to be the most ardent defenders of the separation of church and state. And they often side with the GOP over the Democrats. And I'm not saying that they should side with either one. But at some point, we have to make a stand regarding religion and its impact on state and politics because it's too great an influence. And Trump took full advantage of that when he ran. You know, I can remember when Obama was running and how much he felt the need to emphasize how Christian he was because of what a what a freaking lunatic George W. Bush was. I totally talked to God and he told me it is my divine destiny that we go into Iraq and Afghanistan. Just say it's in the name of God and you get away with anything.
That's not true, Jaden. It's partially true. That is, for the most part, their base in the South. But that is true in the South. And that's why the South has been solidly GOP since Reagan. And it ain't changing anytime soon. And in so many ways, we have allowed that to completely dominate our political sphere in states that it shouldn't be dominating it. But that's a conversation for another day. That's a very good point, Jan. And Jan, join us on, on YouTube if you can. When the hurricane, I forget which one it was, but the hurricane that hit in um, Houston, which is where Joel Austin's megachurch is located, he did not open his doors for those in need. Very, very Christ-like, I must say. Doesn't pay to open your doors to those that don't have anything to offer. I would definitely, definitely say. Uh, good friend, amazing friend of the show, Lana Dell. It's a Mayflower descendant. I'm very serious about separation of church and state. Church members that were on Mayflower were jailed for refusal to attend the Church of England, and they attempted to carry that here. You know, it's funny. From my experience growing up in the Northeast, you know, where I come from, there were basically two religions, Judaism and Catholicism. And that's, you know, I am a, uh, I am a product of that. But Catholics, believe it or not, tend to be probably, at least compared to Protestant, they definitely are the more tolerant of the two. From the perspective of, if you're part of the church, you believe part of the church. But you don't condemn others that don't. That they don't do. But a number of Protestants do. If you want to be making political statements about religion, then it stands to reason that there isn't a separation of church and state. If there isn't a separation of church and state, then churches should be taxed. They certainly have enough political influence to begin with. So tax them. If there, if, there, if there was ever an attempt to make this case that churches should be taxed, that would change politics in the GOP very fast. It just would. It's all about the Benjamins. It really is. It's all about the money. You're damn right they do. They most certainly do. And not only do they tell you how to vote, but it goes with both parties. It's a form of ballot harvesting is what it is. 
Shepard tells the flock to vote for this candidate. And Lord knows what they tell them, what will happen if they don't. I think you can have an idea. And as such, they are influencing the outcome of elections. I had a client who I'm not really working with at this point, but I had a client in real estate who I was trying to help, who was looking for a condo to buy. And I offered to help her find a mortgage lender that I thought would be good for her. And she said, no, that's okay. I talked to my pastor and he referred me to a lender. That's the influence that exists within the church. It's very deep. And it's very dangerous. Now, I'm not going to be telling them that they, you know, shouldn't do that because it's not my business. But just know that it goes on and it goes on in very deep and meaningful ways. And it goes on on both sides. Now, of course, it's much more effective on the GOP side because of the significance of the evangelical movement within the United States, particularly, uh, yeah, I, yeah, you could call it a form of fascism because it blurs the line. The line no longer exists anymore. Religion is too powerful. And the idea that a COVID death that could have happened, remember, President Trump was at Walter Reed multiple times. It was at John Hopkins. Either way, he apparently was in very dire straits at one point. And you're telling me that we couldn't have come that close to possibly dealing with a President Pence and what he could have potentially pulled off if he was elected? Who the hell knows? I see that the lady of uh, the, the lead lady of the show is in the bullpen. I suppose she would like to join. Let's bring in Jen. Hello. Hey, that's not what I'm doing here. I was work the nope. chat from being on in the studio. All right, then. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night. Our live stream starts at, I think we're going to start at about 845. We're going to have on two great guests tomorrow night. The first guest is a local guest. It is going to be our friend, Carolina Ampudita, she is going to be, or is running to be the next state party chair for Florida. She's the only candidate who's running as of right now that is running under the progressive banner with no corporate backing. I'd say that's pretty important. So you'll definitely want to tune in to hear what she has to say about the future of the Democratic Party in the state of Florida. Then we're going to have a conversation with a great friend of the show we haven't spoken to in a while. That, of course, is former U.S. Senate candidate from North Carolina, Matthew Ho. Um, as you guys know, there is a anti-war rally that is supposed to take place a week from today. And it's being met with a considerable amount of opposition that I think a lot of organizers are just not really willing to talk about. Truth must be told. If you effectively want to get people behind your cause, then you have to consider who's actually involved and who's pulling the strings. That's not to say that certain people shouldn't be there. I don't have a problem with that. 
But in terms of who's leading it and who's speaking, you got to think about that if you're really trying to build a movement. But we all know that for some of them, that's not the goal. The goal is to build their brand. And that's that. But if you like our brand and you think what we're doing is good, make sure you get over to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a wonderful supporter of our great show. You know that we appreciate any and all contributions that can be made. But if you are feeling a little bit more generous, remember in 2024, we think Mansion Parliamentarian is the most likely outcome for our next president. And you can get the beautiful Lulu sticker to go along with it for 10 bucks. That sounds like a bargain. This alone is worth 10 bucks, probably 20. So if you want this, you know you want to get it. All right. For the really, really generous people, $25 a month will get you, I don't have it on right now, but the beautiful tri-blend generational change baseball jersey. You'll also get the Lulu sticker and the Mansion Parliamentarian bumper sticker and our wonderful support. Go check out our poll on Patreon. It would be really awesome if you did. Remember, we really appreciate any and all contributions you can make. But as we all know, not everybody necessarily wants to include their credit card information and have it on file on regular. So what we do have is an alternative. If you just want to chip in a few bucks, if it is your fancy, please go over to Cash App, dollar sign, Gen Change. We would certainly appreciate a support from that. As Jen has suggested, make sure you go over to check out our poll on Patreon. You know, having some questions about what we should be doing in terms of growth for our channel as we go forward. I am testing the waters for myself personally as far as potentially doing a weekly sports podcast. Sports is my background. It's my passion. I hope you guys enjoyed my commentary. Lana, uh, not familiar, but please send uh, information. And remember, anytime you have a show idea, suggestions, anything at all, make sure you send it to generationalchange at gmail.com. Questions and suggestions. Generationalchange at gmail.com. Make sure you guys get over there. Uh, obviously, appreciate you hearing me out tonight. Uh, you know, sports is a very important part of my life. Uh, as it turns out, um, football is the one is the one specific sport that Jen and I uh, do agree on. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Jen's a Dolphins fan. I'm a Giants fan, but you know, I'm I'm a fan of the game. And I'm a fan of the, you know, the camaraderie that has been built over years. Um, some of my closest friends, that's what we do. We get together for football and going to games is fun. You know, lots of lots of great uh, entertainment that uh, that we have. I appreciate that, Dieter. I do. Uh I hope you enjoyed my commentary tonight. I hope I sounded uh, up to the task and there'll be plenty of conversations to have. Uh, that's okay. We don't have to talk about baseball. I can talk about it. But football and basketball are definitely the two main sports that we would talk about on this channel. 
And my friend James from up north, he is a he, he and I have discussed at length about doing a sports podcast for a long time, possibly something starting in March. So be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, I hope you guys have all enjoyed this conversation this evening. I like baseball too. Sorry if you guys don't, but I'm with Lana. I happen to like baseball very much. Um, somebody's a salty Dolphins fan tonight. We can see that. But as I said, I am very appreciative of all of you who have come through in this hour. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Um, I felt the need to come on tonight and just really, you know, get to the to the important nuances about this game, the things that were discussed. And like I said, uh, as great a game as this was, it is unfortunate that the main talking point is just for for months is going to be that late call. And that's a shame because it was a great game. Sorry, Eagles. I did have to say that, but only one time. And the only reason I'm not rubbing salt in the wound is because I know right now a lot of Eagles fans, a lot of uh, people that I know, um, I have some very close friends that are Eagles fans. Very close friends. And I know they're hurting right now. Dieter, I look forward to it, brother. I'd have to decide when it would make the most sense to do it. Um, we live stream Monday and Wednesday. NFL is on Sunday. So I guess I would probably do the show on Saturday, even though normally they say Saturday is like the worst day of the week to do a podcast. I don't know. I have to think about it. I'll talk to my friend, figure out what might work. But with that said, thank you all. Smash the like button, subscribe, share, do all that wonderful stuff. Uh, Metopoly, I wouldn't expect anything less. Check out the live stream. I know you just got here, but I'm about to hop off. Sunday mornings. I guess I could do the show for like an hour at 12, you know, kind of like an NFL pre type situation. And the same would be true for the NBA, but you know, sometimes you want to come on and talk after the game's over. So sort of like with March madness, because that's probably something we'll do too. We'll see lots of possibilities. Glad to have you all here. Thank you so much. And I'll see you tomorrow night. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.